and thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of Code with Kingy. We're for this go around. I'm talking with a former New Zealand rep and Taranaki Bull and Sharan Matoi. First of all, Kaz, very, very grateful for your time and okay to be here, Kwe. Katie Pai, brother. Thank you for asking. Thank you for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure. I know you've had quite a few guests on lately and ones with big names. So grateful to be a part of it, bro. Thanks for having me. Bro, it's a privilege to talk to anyone that's willing to share their story with me. And as we just sort of mentioned off here, you're up Auckland ways and having to deal with level three. I, I guess it's, that would have been a nice adjustment as of late, having the, the opportunity to branch outside of whatever's thrown in the supermarkets or whatever you're cooking up at home. So have you delved into any takeaways? Yeah, level three, it, it was nice to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, being a lot, being a level four rather for six weeks or so. So um, obviously we came out of level three on Wednesday. Um, I had my first takeaways on Saturday last night. And I, I opted for Burger Fuel because the line at KFC was far too long. There was, <laughs> it was far too long, bro. I was out on the road and they had traffic management with cones and stuff taking up one lane. So the Burger Fuel, highly disappointed. Um, and you know what's funny, bro? I didn't feel like takeaways anyway. Like, if you don't have it, you just don't feel like it. So, yeah, I opted for Burger Fuel, didn't like it. Bro, it's crazy. Like here in Wellies, I remember when we moved to level three and there's like a KFC, which is like always packed out. But I just remember like deliberately driving down that way and just seeing like the chaos. And to me, it's like I'd have, I had mates who were literally up at like five o'clock in the morning to line up to go through the drive through to get their takeaways. And like, oh, you yeah. know, everyone has their vices and everyone's free to use their money on whatever they like. But it's crazy. It would have only been what, two and a half, three weeks. And people were that desperate to get food that, yeah. as we've seen, isn't actually good for them. No, exactly. Especially in Auckland, when we realised we were all going to level four, on our on my way home from work one night, there's like two or three supermarkets, and like the there was traffic jams, bro, on like non-urban roads. There's traffic jams on like roundabouts and like just just like in places that are, there are never traffic jams and. So I'm pretty sure Countdown knew it would open tomorrow morning. Like, you know, I don't know. Some people, some people just honestly don't know. Some people surprise me, man. Yeah, I guess it's just that that sense of panic, and so people. I mean, like anything, you know, when you're in those sort of frightened modes, you do things that you probably typically wouldn't. And as we can see, people can get quite selfish when um, it's actually better off that people think of the the community rather than just themselves or their their close contacts. But I'll leave the, the food stuff to the side, bro. Otherwise, I'll get sidetracked with that. I can mumble on about anything. But before we roll into your story and why I've got you on the podcast, uh, I've got a new segment and it's just, it's like a warm up. So I thought with this podcast being about rugby and being a rugby theme, I thought just to get, you know, the juices flowing, so to speak, I'll throw some questions yeah, at you. Um, and yeah, question number one tea or coffee? Oh, I'm a, oh, it's hard. I'm going to go tea, green yeah. tea. Apple or Android? Apple. Passenger or driver? Driver, 100%. Sweet or savoury? Sweet. Sauce on top or the side? On top. Chocolate <laughs> in the fridge or the cupboard? In the fridge, bro. You're a criminal if you put it in the cupboard. 
Hey man, I've heard different arguments. Um, <laughs> TV show or movie? Um, TV show. Subtitles on or off? <sighs> off. Toothpaste then water or water then toothpaste? Toothpaste then water, bro. All right, last one. Left or right side of the bed? Left. Left side. Is that through your choice? You got a missus or what? Yeah, I've got a missus, bro. I, I think I got pushed to the side. Probably only get like a third of the bed anyway. It doesn't really matter. 100, bro. 100. All right, cool. That's our warm-up out of the way. And hopefully everything just rock and rolls from here, bro. So let's start with Day Dot, my man. How did you even start playing footy and where'd you go up? Um, sweet, bro. So started playing footy. I actually started playing soccer when I was about five. For some reason, I just always like kicking a ball around so started soccer and then I was just naturally quite fast as a kid so I've lost all that speed now but um yeah one of the boys at primary school he was oh you're pretty fast you could you could probably do a ride in rugby and we would have been seven or eight at the time so I thought yeah I'll give it a crack change to rugby would have been about eight or nine um and bro I just never looked back like I fell in love with the game it's about all I did played rugby at school came home Chucked on my boots, kicked around all night until it went dark. Um, I live rurally, um, south of Taranaki, born and bred. So um, we lived right across the road from from my primary school. So I, I'd like the bell would ring, go home, have a feed, run back over with the boots until dark. So and like grew up on a dairy farm as well, man. So pretty blessed childhood. No traffic jams. The only traffic you get is when the tankers roll past and you try and get them to honk. But that, that's pretty much it, man. So. Started playing footy uh, at about eight years old. Never looked back, bro. Love, fell in love with it, eh? True. Humble beginnings. Um, and I listened to your podcast with Carlos, bro, the Hustlers podcast. For anyone that hasn't checked that one out, please to go check that one out. And we'll get to your podcast in a second. But a Māori boy on a farm. I've met a lot of Māori <laughs> boys from a farm, bro. So how, how does that, is that like a generational thing? Or did your old man just choose to like, take like a left field occupation he's like yeah i want to raise some cows on a farm and bring my whanau into it bro i think you put it on the head it was definitely just like a one-off thing so dad's dad was a jack of all trades really um and dad kind of just as a young gun he just wanted money on the side um he was working at like the local freezing work small town type of thing and yeah like farming was like the end thing bro because we're real rural and it was just kind of a thing to do back then and you're right bro Maldives who farm are, are pretty rare to come across to be fair so um i can i can tell you now that we're the only brown family the only Maldi family within probably a 40k radius um who, who are dairy farmers but it had its unique challenges like it would bro but man it's a it was an awesome way to grow up like you grow up with people and kids who are your neighbors and you go all the way through school with them and like I'd go to school with bare feet, run across the road to get some lunch, run back to school. Like, it was just an awesome way to grow up, man. Pretty grateful for it, eh? Do you make much time to get back to the farm or is your whanau still running things for the dairy? Um, they are, bro. They're still on the farm down in South Taranaki. So I try and make an effort to go down whenever I can or whenever I can get time off. Um, but obviously, depending on what, what season that they're farming in, it can get pretty busy for them. So... Um, they kind of like to get out of out of their environment as well. Funny you bring it up. Or, um, they're looking at leaving the whole industry as a whole probably in the next six or so months. So um, it'll be nice to kind of see them do something other than pulling tits and waking up at 3 a.m. But yeah, bro, that's pretty much it, eh? 
bro, I, bro, my anyone who goes through that sort of hard yakka, bro, like year in, year out. And I was going to say, bro, it's funny, like, again, after listening to that podcast, I'm from Taranaki as well. Not, I wasn't raised there, but my family's oh, true. My mum's side's from Hawara, and my dad's whānau's from Manaya, bro. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah. So I was just like, bro, that's like, my parents live in Hawara at the moment. Oh, sorry, in Manaya, but yeah, that we all grew up in Hawara, so... Yeah. That's buzzy, bro. We're probably we're probably connected somehow. Bro, bro, probably. Um, and you know, like I used to get forced here, you know, to go back there for holidays. And because I'm an urban <laughs> kid, bro, I'm a city slicker. And there was yeah. like besides like the pools and that one big park, which I can't even remember the name of. Yeah, I, I used to literally just count down the days till I got back home. Bro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, bro. It's um, I don't know. If you're gonna if you're gonna grow up there, I definitely recommend growing up out on the farm where you can kind of just be yourself. Like growing up in a small town like that, there's really nothing for you, bro. So, mm. to be fair, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Bro. It's, it's funny how you can make connections like this, like you and I have never met like in person, but man, yeah. I feel like I already know you through that, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, bro. It's funny how like, yeah, you can just align with um, certain places or, yeah, I guess, yeah, our childhoods really, eh? But back to you and the footy, though. So, yeah, bro, you, for you, sure. said that you, you said that you never looked back after kicking off, what, at age eight? And you ended up at two tour. Mm-hmm. So how did that? Because I, I remember two tour because yeah, it was prominent in my years at high school, and I sort of knew a little bit about it coming from a Māori Fano. So how did that opportunity mm-hmm. come about? And because that would I'm guessing like with our ages, because what you were like 22, 21. I'm 24. Yeah, 22. Um, that would have been like right when it started. So can you tell us a little bit of, yeah, about right. that experience? Yeah, bro. So, um, Tutor, for those of you that don't know, it's like a Māori um, sports institution. I use sports as a vehicle to kind of get through their academics and stuff. So, my sister actually went to Tutor in 2009, her last year of school, um, and she was part of the net program there. And uh, they won New Zealand secondary schools. They bet mags, actually. Mm. Um, so, they were a school of like 40, and 12 of them were netball girls, and they bet they were the best in the country. So, there was something about what it meant to go there. Um, it was something about high-performance sport as a Māori um, and seeing them do really successful. It was something that I always wanted to do. And the year before I went, they started a rugby program. So the stars aligned and I kind of just put one foot in the door and said, hey, I'm, I'm keen to kind of leave the Naki and keen to try something different. Um, went down to Palmy, spent two years there. Some of the best years of my life, bro. So met some wicked boys, learned a lot about my culture um, and just worked really hard, man. Like we were, we weren't funded that much. We were driven off having each other's back. Our, our culture was awesome as it would be as a, as full of Māori boys who were keen and, and keen to get stuck in. So learned a lot, bro. Learned a lot about growing up. First time moving away from home. Um, and at the time when I was year nine, we had, it was Aotearoa Blacks last year at school. So um, growing up, I kind of always wanted to to be part of New Zealand schools and kind of moving out of Taranaki was more of a, a step in that direction if I looked big picture and I was 12 at the time. So I didn't really know how it would look, but I knew that I needed to get out of the Naki for it to make it happen. So OT was in his last year. I was in my first year and OT kind of put us on the map in terms of a rugby a rugby program, bro, because he was the first one from our school to ever make an under-18s rep team. So Hurricanes under-18s at the time. He was um, going down to camps in Wellington. He played for them. 
started for them and then he went on to play New Zealand Barbarians. He came off the bench. Damian McKenzie was the starting 10 there. So but I remember it vividly, man. So like seeing that from a small, like a small Māori school that I was a part of and that he was adding value to, I was like, fuck, this is exactly where I want to be. This is kind of like I was happy with the path that I chose at the time. And yeah, right. He kind of put us on the map. And then at that stage, people were kind of starting to hear about us in the, in the rugby. And we used to go down to Wellington for, um, at St. Pat's Silverstream. Went to stream to, um, bro, that's my old school, bro. Yeah. Oh, true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Keep going, though. yeah bro, they had, um, you guys hosted the Hurricanes under 15s tournament. Yeah. Um, so we were always in that and like, we were playing big dogs, like Gizzy boys were there, St. Pat's Silverstream, St. Pat's town, Rongatai. And they were big, big games for us. And, for some reason, bro, I, I don't know what happened. We had we had decent teams. Like, uh, we won my first year. Like, we had Eddie and Adi in that team. He's Hawks Bay at the moment. Um, Crusaders, Rupina Parkinson, Tasman Marco. So, bro, we had a decent team, man. Um, and what it did is it kind of gave us a lot more exposure. And off the back of that, a lot of boys started getting looked at from bigger schools and even from NRL. So, there were a few boys that got picked up from the storm, Sydney Roosters, and kind of seeing that as a young Māori boy as well, you're kind of thinking, man, this is becoming more and more of a, of a possibility. So add that kind of prospect to a hardworking culture, like good things are going to happen. So mm. bro, it, was a, it, was, it was a wicked time, good tournament. We went back to back. We won both of them. So I don't know, put us in good steed for sure. Put us in good steed for sure, bro. Yeah, I actually remember. So the first year that Tutor played, I think it might have been, I think twenty. You might have even been part of it, bro. I think Stream won the first tournament that we held, yeah. but they played you guys, and we're like, oh, you know, this is a Maori excellent school. And then like afterwards, everyone's like, Naji, like half their team are year nines, and we're like, I. <laughs> there was still, like there was some decent sized boys, bro, but like you you could you couldn't tell given like the skill level that you boys played yeah. at, but. Cool with the uh, obviously the story about like what made you want to pursue the dream through two tour, but you know you're talking about you know like coming from Harvard or as well, bro. Like you know, yeah. not wanting to discredit Harvard or high, but that probably wouldn't have put you on the rugby map. But outside of having the opportunity to go to two tour, what was like? Did you think about going to New Plymouth Boys or anything like that to to kickstart your footy career or anything like that? Um, to be honest, bro, I hadn't. Um, two tour was kind of the only option, and it kind of made sense in my mind. Like at the time. I was at Harvard Intermediate. Um, I had a really close group of mates and they were all kind of going to New Plymouth Boys. If they weren't going to New Plymouth Boys, they were going to Harvard High or Opunake. So um, I don't know, something inside me just knew that I was I was meant for bigger things than, than that. Like I'd kind of seen the rugby program at Harvard. It wasn't something that I was, wanted to be a part of respectfully. And even New Plymouth Boys, bro, I just, I don't know, I just didn't think that I'd fit in that type of system. And I don't know, I was pretty lucky to make a decision at 12 years old that it's not what I wanted to do. And I, um, so yeah, bro, to answer your question, no, I, I had no intention of going to any other school when I was 12. And so you go to Tutor, you get stuck into the regiment and you obviously learn like what hard work is, you know, because it, it was essentially a Māori excellent school from, from all that I gathered. And then from there, you spend your first two years there and then you get a scholarship to Kings from year 11s to 13. Mm. So, you know, I mean, I guess it's one big step going from a Taranaki dairy farm to Palmy 
and then going from Palmy to you know one of the richest schools in Auckland <laughs> on a rugby yeah. scholarship where there's expectations so yeah. Can you remember like how that, you know, did you get an email? Was it a phone call? Did you ever sit down with your parents with someone from Kings and maybe take us through that next three year window? Yeah, bro. Um, so at the time I mentioned him earlier, Rupin Parkinson and, and his older cousin, Putty, Putty Putty. Um, they were kind of, they had talks with, with St. Kent's. So their dad, Ruben, um, he was our coach at Tutor, but he also had links to Tyler Vere, which is the St. Kent's coach. And, um, St. Kent's kind of started looking at a few of us at, at Tutor and the St. Kent's coach, Tyler Vere, his twin is Tessa Lavere. So obviously being twins and being a, uh, the first 15 coach for Kings, one being one for St. Kent's, they kind of, obviously they're talking every day. So yeah, bro, that's kind of like where that possibility started to spike in my mind. Oh, I don't think it would be a possibility, but essentially how it started, I was playing a under 16 tournament um, over in Rotoria, over in Gizzy, just past Gizzy, we had a Hurricanes under 16s tournament. And, um, bro, I'm pretty sure I played in that one as well, bro. Oh, oh, yeah, true. Bro, yeah, I played for Wellies, but anyway, this isn't about me, but crack on, crack on. Sorry, <laughs> bro. So, we were we were playing, I was playing for Manawa too at that time. Um, and I was playing 10, my halfback was Eddie Hanari, and he was getting looked at by St. Kent's and Kings came down. So the, the two twins came down and after one of the games, Eddie and I were just talking. Um, and then I think Eddie's dad came over and he's like, Hey boys, um, these two coaches want to have a talk to you. So mum and dad were there at the time and we pretty much just sat down and had a chat with, with the Kings coach, bro. And I was, I was 14 at the time. So at the end of my year 10 period, and he was like, do you want to like pretty much just told me what Kings was about? pretty much sold me the dream and and it worked bro and then a few weeks later mum and dad drove me up to up to Auckland and I got a tour around the school from the man himself Tatissa and the headmaster at the time so it all happened pretty quickly to be honest um but man what a grateful what a grateful procedure um like I I didn't go out and and seek any any scholarship like they came to me so like I'm, I'm grateful to kind of I must have been good enough to to kind of have have eyes on me. So, bro, just I don't know. Just uh, it's hard to explain because going on five six years out of school now. But this whole conversation of starting in Harbour, going to the Palmies to Tutor, and then going to Kings is it still gives me goosebumps, bro. It still makes my heart my heart rate hit the roof. So, because Kings is it's a special it's a special place to be, bro. And and they didn't have to do that. Like a a kid that came from. One of the smallest towns, bro. The town I grew up in, you drive past, you blink, you miss it. Like, type of thing. So, to give a boy, a Māori boy, at 14, the chance to not only play rugby on one of the biggest stages in schoolboy footy, but, like, the education that Kings provides. And I said it in Carlos's podcast, but I'll say it again, like, and a lot of things that um, people don't really realise in terms of kids getting scholarships to bigger schools is, they don't want you just for your rugby. They want you. They want to grow you as a person. And his, like Tassessa's exact words were, besides the rugby, what do you want to grow into a good person and a good father. And like that to me, when he took that all round holistic approach, I was like, yeah, this is exactly what I meant for. Like everything just fell into place for me, bro. And comparing Harwater to King's College is like, 
it's like comparing one side of Dubai to the other, bro. You know how like Dubai, you got the slums, yeah, like people living in shacks, and then a few k's down the road, you've got skyscra- skyscrapers. So that's what it felt like, bro. But I guess that's the thing that probably gets overlooked. Like when you talk about all the boys that get picked up on scholarships, which the majority of the time are are brown brothers who don't come from yeah. the most fortunate backgrounds, and I think that people can sometimes get caught up in the the results and I guess like the bigger schools continually succeeding. I mean, because in all honesty, like I see it from both sides. I can see where people can get annoyed with, you know, the schools like St. Kent's and Kings because they have the the budget, so to speak, to bring boys in, you know, bring top level talent in. But yep. I don't know. That's like any workplace, really. Yeah, it, 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 it is like, political. Yeah, I do agree with you, bro. One hundred percent. Sorry for butting in. No, um, no. Yeah, I was, I, I was just gonna say, but that was like the before I give it back to you, bro. Is this like like you said an example like yourself from for a small Maori boy who would have never dreamt of having that sort of opportunity growing up and then having it come so young and you know that stuff just doesn't impact you in that three to five year window that you're at school right like that sets you up to be the man that you are today exactly bro and and I think for Kings being so prestigious it also taught you about networking but what it also did for me was apart from rugby take rugby out of the equation I gave a young Māori boy an opportunity, period. Like, whatever that opportunity may be, basketball, debating, school council, it gave a young 14-year-old from Halda an opportunity. And that, to me, is, like, I'll never, in my mind, I'll never be able to repay the college for that. And that's what people don't see, is that there was no way that a Harwater boy is meant to be at King's College, you know? So, and I took that really, really seriously, yeah. Like, don't get me wrong, I trained hard for footy. That was the main reason I was there. But, like, I was getting, we have effort grades at King's. Like, you get effort grades and you get scaled, like, A to E. And if, if you get it, e, you're pretty much out. So, for my first two years, I got straight A's for all effort out of all my classes. So, like, my attendance, my effort, like, I'm not the smartest person, but I just kept on trying, 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 trying. And, bro, it actually got to the point where in my last year, I got elected deputy head boy of King's College. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't know, it just, like, the math just doesn't weigh out. How does a young Māori boy from Haura become going to King's College on a rugby scholarship but end up being deputy head boy? Like, that's how much that I tried to give to the school. Like, that, to me, was an opportunity for me to provide the school with more value than what I was there for, you know? So um, I don't know. I think that there was a reflection on all the hard work that, that I put in outside of rugby. Um, I bought into school culture. I bought into my boarding house and the whole culture around that. So for being like a Maori kid or being like a, a person of fair skin, regardless of where you're from, what Kings kind of did for me was, it kind of gave me like a tangible thing to look at. So, so when you grow up in like a small town, you don't think that big goals are obtainable for you. You just don't, you know, like you think that your reality is, for example, my example, growing up on a farm and taking the, taking the herd off my dad and then milking cows for 40 years. That's your reality. But for me going to Kings, I could actually see, Oh man, like, there's other things in life that are obtainable. I can see that now. It actually gave me an opportunity to see what more out of life there is. 
than what I came from. So it was awesome to be able to compare both both realities. It was cool to go home and be grounded again because, to be honest, bro, I got carried away like in my first year and a half there as well, you know? Like, I don't know, you're, like, you're playing first 15 footy. Naturally, like, people at the school, like, they kind of gravitate towards you. Um, and then again, like, you're going to parties, you're getting drinks thrown at you, like, girls, all of that, bro. So there was, there was all of that as well. So yeah. really enjoyed it, bro, to be honest. <laughs> but I was going to say, bro, like, I guess going from a dairy farm and then, you know, like for humble beginnings and, you know, there's some lovely properties here, but then seeing some of the houses in the affluent areas in Auckland day, bro, it's like yeah. $1 like to the day. <laughs> like, cause yeah, again, like not, this is, this is weird. Like how I guess almost relatable we are. So what's my fun is from Taranaki, but I actually spent a year in Auckland as well. So I went to Mags for one year. Yeah. But I can't, but before I went to Mags, I lived with my mum and I lived out East where St. Kent's is in Pakaranga. Pakaranga, yeah. And yeah, bro, like, it's just a totally different world, you know, like half mm. an hour's drive out east in comparison to if you take that, the motorway down to South Auckland where things aren't as great, bro. But, oh, you know, well, in, in, in Otahu, where Kings is, it's still pretty nice, bro. <laughs> but hey, yeah. you, you get what I mean. But push yeah, it back to your footy. Obviously, you, like, you go up there with a pretty serious attitude. And how did, you know, you obviously look to repay the school by all the effort you put outside the field, but how did stuff actually go with your rugby? Um, bro, it was a, it was a massive learning curve for me, um, in a in a rugby sense, and the fact that Tessa was a first five as well, so he played for Samoa in the World Cup, and he was Blues and did a stint with the Melbourne Storm. So I really learned a lot of the technical details around being a first five at a really young age in terms of being square, hip square, um, catch pass, looking and just learning how to manage the game as a 10, um, driving your team around the field. And that's something that just came naturally to me, but I didn't realise the importance of it until I got there. So I think naturally I, I'm an overthinker. And like when I say, so for example, we've got a line out on the halfway, I know exactly what we're going to. And before the hooker even starts to run towards the sideline to grab the ball off the ball boy, he knows the call coming out of my mouth. So bro, most of my time apart outside of outside of footy and all the other like outside of school things, I was like in my book, bro, writing down all these moves, writing down I knew exactly where everyone was meant to be. And I think it worked against me, but um so bro, I was like learning a lot around the technical details around being a first five. So my first year my first year Sis was like, Oh, you probably We'll ease you in. We probably won't start you um, through preseason. We'll just ease you into it. And the first game we played Otago boys at home, starting and started, started pretty much every game after that. So, um, but we had like Jonah Lowe, uh, we had Tom Hardy. So we were definitely in a in a development year. But I was lucky that I kind of I didn't try to do too much in that first year. I was like, obviously, um, I was all of 60, 65, 70 kgs going up against 110, 120 keg boys so um, I was playing it pretty smart playing playing it pretty smart back then um, and I was lucky enough to make the Blues under 18s in year 11 bro so going to that camp was like getting fast tracked into there was massive massive learning like there was um, Sam Knox last year Rico Ioannis last year Sean Stevenson Sam Olofanoa he had all these big dogs and just being around them bro like I don't know, it was just like I was 15 at the time. Um, I was like only year 11, 
um, just being around them and obviously they went on to make schools. Man, I'm getting closer to my goal, you know? So um, first year we lost more games than we won, I think. I probably wasn't, I wasn't happy with my performance to be fair. Uh, I definitely thought that I could have given more in that first year. Um, second year came around, I felt like I was a little bit more mature physically. Like I'd settled into the school then. Um, people kind of knew me around the wider Auckland area, so they knew my game. They, they, they were starting to target me and stuff. So second year, we got Balin Sullivan up. Um, we had AJ Moore, Joe Johnson and the like. So, and, and Jamie Spold as well. So we had a, on paper, bro, we had a really good team and we worked hard as well. So that second year, I was a lot more comfortable in the saddle, making better decisions, um, felt a lot more confident in my abilities and my decision-making. Got to the semis, played grammar in the semis, and and, and fell out. So, Auckland, oh yeah, grammar, grammar Keynes games, as you know, are massive. Played four of them, lost one. Oh, sorry, lost three. So, twenty five percent strike rate, bro. Not the best, but bro, some of the best footy, some of the best footy that I've ever played in. So, last year, um, obviously being a deputy head boy, I wasn't too keen on. I was in the leadership group, but. Um, Joe Johnson got the captaincy and that was probably the best decision for the whole team. Probably one of the best captains I've ever had. So definitely took a lot of stress off me being having outside school commitments and stuff. But yeah, that, that last year, like I was in the best physical shape. I was training well and we probably had one of the best back lines and forward pack really um, on paper. We just couldn't really put it together on the field. So we missed out on semis again. We did beat grammar that year. Um, but overall, bro, to be honest, uh, I don't think I played. I probably played the worst footy of my life at Kings, to be fair. Um, but still played, a, but still ended up going all right. So, find my time again. I'll definitely do it again and do a few things different. But yeah, overall, I had heaps of opportunities there, man. Like my year, my year twelve year, went to schools camp, and that's when I was like, fuck yeah, I'm, I'm close. But I uh, played NC Barbarians. Um, and then in that last year, I was grateful enough to make entered school, so finally reached my goal. So big journey, bro, a lot of learnings, learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about footy um, and, and being, a, being a first five. So pretty grateful for that opportunity. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just taking what I sort of took away from that was the, obviously the, well, we led into it with the seriousness in which you, you took your scholarship going to Kings and you talked about learning from a coach who, had been there and done that and so you were almost learning things that were meant to be for guys who were out of school at mm. ages 15 and there's a you know I do so much reading around rugby and I try to like cover all the bases and you know there's a there's a lot of talk around the seriousness of high school sport these days and yeah. whether or not we're actually fast tracking guys like yourself in present times too quickly mm. because one you know, you get some guys who get sold the dream and, you know, they're like, bang, all I want to do is rugby and they don't really think of having a plan B, which is, which is weird, bro. I don't want to make this too much of a waffle, but there's, there's this argument that, like, you know, if you're not all in, like, how are you going to get to your dream? Like, if, you, if you've already yeah. got one foot out the door with your plan B, but um, more to my point, bro, like, reflecting on your time at Kings, do you think that you did take it too seriously or is that just the way that you're wired? Like, do you think that that's just the way you process things with rugby? I'm glad you brought it up, bro. Uh, to answer your question, like black and white, 
uh, yes, I definitely took it way too seriously. And part of that is kind of like who I am. Um, but man, I forget that I was only 15, 16. Like I'm still a kid. I'm still learning about life. I'm still learning about how to conduct myself around the boys and then how, how I change around girls, you know, like, and then when alcohol comes in the mix, cause you're so young, cause that's what you grow up in. So yeah, I, th- I think I took it way, way too seriously, bro. Like way too seriously. Um, and I, I learned a lot from that more so to enjoy the process, enjoy everything. Um, and, and not kind of pretty much just take everything with a grain of salt, bro. So, um, those are the biggest learnings that, that came out of my my experience at King. So I definitely took it a lot way too seriously. I'm not sorry for it. It's how I was wired back then. And I ended up all right. So <laughs> still made my goal of schools and deputy head boy and stuff like that. So yeah, man, if I had my time again, I'd definitely just relax a little bit more, just chill out a bit more um, and just kind of get that balance a little bit better. Just needed to remind myself back then that I'm still a kid, still got to learn, still got to grow, still got to make mistakes. I think that's probably some of the cool things that we've seen now in the social media age for all the detriment that, that it can bring. Like with the rugby players, especially, I feel like when you, like, I don't know, like as of late, I've seen like guys like Bowden Barrett sharing that they have a beer and they go out and do stuff besides footy. Whereas I think like back in my day, I always looked at like the All Blacks and footy players and thought like all they do is like eat well, all they eat is chicken and broccoli, go yeah. out and like kick a ball all day. <laughs> They're just rugby, rugby, rugby. Whereas like, I guess you you know now and what we're seeing on social media is that the ones who are actually at the top of their game consistently are ones who aren't just rugby 100% of the time. They need something yeah. else to take their mind away from it and keep them refreshed. Yeah, 100%. And that's the beauty of social media. And I think the All Blacks are really doing that really well. And especially the bigger boys like Bodie and TJ and, and Aaron Smith. So I think they're really understanding that the way that the the game's going is a lot more virtual and they're really taking advantage of that. Uh, they're taking advantage of their brand as a person rather than a player off the back of their rugby career. Um, that wasn't normal for even when I was going through, which is, man, two, three years ago. So it's moving fast, but they're moving with lines. And I think people have just got to realise that these these people are just human, man. Like they've got the same five senses. They've got two feet, some of them three um two hands like and of course i'm gonna have a beer after the game like we're all we're all critical of the all black because they're like rugby's our, our nation's sport so bro it's like a religion when, eh? like it's like a religion bro and whenever we whenever they take to the field we expect them to not make a single mistake we expect them to convincingly win but reality is bro is that it's just not going to happen last night was another example plenty of mistakes stop start footy but if you look at the end of it, bro, they're all catching up. They're all having a laugh. They're all smiling. They're like, oh, fuck, it was good fun. But it's just a game, you know? Like, yeah. the boys are having beers. They're changing jerseys. They're, um, you know, they're, they're dapping and chopping up with, with the Springboks boys. So um, I think we always forget that these these people are, yes, they're professionals and they're professional in their own right. But they're humans, man. They make mistakes. We all do. Um, and at the end of the day, they've got, they've got emotions and feelings as well. So... Um, I'm glad you brought that up, bro, because as I said, social media, the beauty of it, they're really capturing that whole approach really well in my eyes, yeah. Mm. And hopefully, yeah, it's um, it feeds into the next generation so that we don't see the burnout that we see with some guys. But like you said, you finished up at school, you accomplished your goal of playing New Zealand schools. 
And like, like I said, I mean, like you were scout, well, yeah, you were scouted to go to Kings. And so I'm guessing you would have, you know, given the seriousness in, at which you did take rugby from the get go. What was the plan for like when you left school, what sort of opportunities came about and like, did you have a deal sussed in year 12? Like what was the go? Um, so year 12, I was having a little bit of talk with the chiefs. Um, they had a development manager, um, really good dude, Dave Dillon. Um, I played Sacred Heart in my, oh no, actually, sorry, it was year 11, year 11, um, wow. playing at Sacred and lost the game. Um, I was still trying to fucking make my balance after, um, Taniela Tupo, he ran straight at me. I, I, bro, to this day, I swear, I swear they fucking, they made that move directly at me. So pretty much they had a line out on our 22, um, full line out. So it's backs on backs and Nala faked the lift at the front and then they, they jumped in the middle, gave it down to him and he beelined it straight for me. And I was like, fuck me. <laughs> holy shit this can't be real and like two weeks later he's like running over wingers and shit that video of yeah, him bro. The one versus Kelston. the one that put him on the map bro essentially yeah the one that fucking put him viral yeah. and like <laughs> i was just thinking fuck i'm gonna be another i'm gonna be another victim and um bro i just managed to close my eyes wrap my wrap my whole body around one leg drag them for a f- and bro, for some reason i have no idea like i'm probably one of the worst tacklers you ever see i got him and I was fucking winded for the next five minutes. So that was the game that, um, anyway, I had no idea they were coming. Finished the game um, after match and, and Dave Dillon came up to me and um, gave me like this little USB and just had a chat and stuff. And it was kind of like cemented. And then we had like back and forth chats in my year 12 year. And kind of like halfway through my last year in school, by that time I'd, I'd had like a, I had a player agent. So he looked after me, he looked after whatever was coming in, um, if any. And I was always keen. I, I knew after leaving school that I wanted to play professionally. Like, there was no doubt about it. And halfway through my last year of school, Taranaki offered me a contract and I was like, hundred percent, like there's no other, there's no other team that I want to play for. So it was in part of the holidays. Um, I was home, um, the coach, our assistant coach, uh, Chiefs, they all came around home on the farm. Mum went to the local four square, got them some, got them some backing and made them a cup of tea. So um, we all, we all chopped it up, bro, and I, and I signed the dotted line and that was me signed for Taranaki for two years and kind of kept it quiet until kind of school's time, New Zealand schools and kind of off the back of that, after school that year, I really, really dialed in and tried to hone in on Kind of that next, what what that next phase for me was looking like. So, again, I was still kind of pretty serious, but it all lay probably too serious. Like, I was due to start in Hamilton at the Chiefs kind of academy, Feb, the year after I finished school. So I would have had all summer. But I stayed in the Naki all summer, trained. I was like fresh off eighteen. Everyone I knew my age was like, at rhythm R and V. I remember on New Year's I specifically slept on New Year's Eve, um, and then. Where I planned to do like a, a workout at home from like 10 p.m. till 2 a.m. So I worked out. I worked out in the garage on the farm for four hours straight over that over uh, New Year's period. So when I went from 2016 to 2017, and that for me, bro, was like it was just like a internal confidence booster to think that yeah, I'm in the hurt locker here and all my competitions at rhythm. Yeah. I'm a piss, you know, like 
I don't know. I don't think I've ever told that story, but um, that's just kind of like the mindset that I was in. I was like, that there's there's no way that someone's getting in, in front of my goals or like I know I'm good enough. So um, I knew I was kind of going into the men's league at the time. Tanaki had Marty McKenzie and Stephen Pitofeta. So Stevie just had his first year with the Blues. Marty, honestly, obviously has had a pretty good career with the Crusaders and the Blues and Chiefs and whatnot. So I wanted to make my mark. Um, and then went down to Hamilton and there was, we had like Chiefs 20s training, Chiefs under 20s. And it was funny, bro, when I moved to Hamilton, I was in a, I was in a Chiefs house. So I was living with like Atu Moli, Filiami, Tolani, a few of the other boys that go through there. So the lady we lived with actually worked at the Chiefs. She was like a, like a manager or something. And one weekend, the Chiefs under 20s had a camp, but I wasn't, I wasn't in the camp. I just, I just didn't get selected. And there were people in that weren't in schools moving selected and stuff. So I was like, oh, fuck, like, whatever. It is what it is. So, and then the lady I lived with came home because I was like, fuck all, and they were training. And I'm like, oh, they need more numbers. Can you just go down and, and lend them a hand? So I went down to training. And, like, obviously I played 10 for, like, my whole life. Trained for the camp. It was, like, two, three days. And then we had a game against the Blues that weekend. Trained at 10 on the bench, like, just being a number. And then I got named on the bench to play halfback, to play halfback. <laughs> Never played halfback before in my life. And, like, I didn't know these boys, didn't know the moves. I was like, oh, sweet, it is what it is. Let's just, let's just run with it. So um, went up to Auckland, got on the bench. Uh, we were losing. And then I came on with about 30 to go. Uh, was meant to go on at halfback, went on at 10. Um, and bro, we, we made a pretty solid comeback out. Scored a try, kicked a few conversions. Severi scored a double in like five minutes. And we came with them maybe like 10, 12 points. Ended up losing. And that's kind of where like the 20s journey started for me, bro. So unbeknownst to me, the New Zealand 20s coaches were there. I knew that I had the next year to make 20s, but I didn't think in all that it would be a possibility that I'd be able to get in the 20s squad that year. Like it just wasn't. Well, obviously, I wasn't even in the Chiefs 20s camp for wider selection. So how are you meant to even have New Zealand 20s in your sights? Anyway, I was starting the next game at 10 for, for Chiefs 20s. Uh, we played like a New Zealand 20s uh, trial game down in Palmy. Went all right there. And then we played Argentina under 20s. So they, came, they were doing a tour um, of New Zealand at the time. And yeah, bro, so... Played them, and then before that game, the coaches were like, oh, you could, um, if you play right here, you, you could be a shot to go to Aussie with New Zealand 20s. And I was like, what the fuck's happening, man? Like, like three weeks ago, I was like, I wasn't even meant to be here. You know what I mean? So that's how fast can go on rugby for you, bro. And I genuinely believe that, like, that Hurt Locker session that I did over New Year's put me there. I don't think it was by any chance that I was there, so apart from a little bit of luck. So, yeah, bro, that was the journey, and then... Played a ride against Argentina. I was at uni the next week, walking away. Uh, sorry, walking out of class. Probably one of the only classes that I did go to at the time. And just got a random a random number call me on my phone. And if anyone who knows me, bro, I've got, like, phone anxiety. So when I see, like, a random number or, like, no caller ID, like, there's no way I'm picking it up. Like, just chuck it back in my pocket. I don't know what it was, bro, but for some reason I picked it up, picked it up. Hello, Shran speaking. Shran, it's the um, so-and-so New Zealand under-20s coach. Hey, we've, obviously, we've been looking at you, whatever, um, and we want to take you to Oceania. <laughs> I'm like, holy fuck, you're joking, mate. 
it happened so fast for me, bro. And I was, bro, I was, honestly, I was wrapped, day. Eh? Like, I was in good, I was in good form. I felt like I kind of, like, got back my mojo from not really, not really finding it at Kings. Um, so I was happy with where I was at. Uh, at the time, we had Tian Falcon. Uh, Stephen Petofeta was there as well, but he was at the Blues. They didn't release him. And Matty Lansdowne. So we were all there. Um, went over to Aussie. Benched my first game, started my second game against Samoa and didn't play against Aussie. So got a few runs and what a wicked team that was, bro. So I um, missed out on World Cup that year. That was like Tom Christie, Luke Jacobson, Eddie Anadi, Tian Falcon, Caleb Clark, Will Jordan, Safo Omor, Alex Fidel, Izzy from Gizzy. Like the list goes on, man. Um, like their, their, bench, their bench was stacked. Uh, there's uh, there's no coincidence that they Braden Enor, um, there was no coincidence that they that they won that World Cup. So I missed that on World Cup. I was sweet as with that. Um, obviously because I knew that I still had another year to to hopefully make it. Went home, played Taranaki Mighty Ten and Under 19s. Went to Under 19s tournament, come through unscathed, and then the week after, um, I got put on the bench against Napier to play. Yeah, to play Napier or Hawks Bay rather. Potentially in my Mighty 10 Cup debut. And, um, bro, growing up in the Naki, being an 18-year-old Māori boy, being able to de- debut for that team was was massive, massive achievement. And obviously, I'm out of the footy arena at the moment, but it's still like an achievement that I'm really proud of. And I got to I got to run on with my good mate, Tom Florence. So, um, he's I think he's Tanaki Bull 1282. I'm 1-2-8-2, so... Pretty cool memories, man. Got on, touched the ball a few times, um, kicked the conversion. So got a few minutes at the end, and, and we and we got a good win. So I think I played three three games that year. Uh, I started one against North Harbour. The boys had locked away their own Philly Shield for the year. Uh, we had Tasman semi confirmed at home the next week, but we had a it was back when you had like a storm week or something similar. So you'd have like two games or three games in a week. Um, so they kind of put it against, like put their B side against North Harbour. So I got to start there and went all right. Um, played full 80 minutes, got a couple tries, kicked some conversions, missed a lot of tackles, got bumped off by Tavita Lee, scored five tries on us. So really good memories, bro. Um, came off the bench against Tasman uh, in the semi. Um, I think when I think we were leading, got like five minutes, got whacked by Mitch Hunt. He made like half a field break. But bro, like you know, just just memories, man, and experiences that as an eighteen-year-old Maldi boy, I could never ever forget. So um, that was my first year learning under Stephen Petofeta and Marty McKenzie. We had Charlie Nartai there at the time, so wealth of experience. Colin Cooper was there too, and then my second year, Coops had left, but we still had a similar team, um, and yeah, we went alright that year as well, but. Didn't really get as much game time as what I was hoping. So came off the bench, probably started one game against Tasman, got got a hiding. But yeah, but I think all up I've only played like eight or nine games, maybe not even that. So interesting journey, bro. Interesting journey. Yeah, bro. Like, like you said, it all happened pretty quickly, man. And I hate to bring it up, but you know, like going back to the, the podcast you did with Carlos, you talked about that second time round yeah. with the 20s. So obviously like it's a, it's a massive achievement, I guess, like that month that you had with the Chiefs 20s, which led to you getting uh, selected for the team to go over to Oceania. You miss out on that, but not, not. I mean, I, I'm just assuming you're like, 
it was almost you were just grateful to be there to begin with. Obviously, you would have liked to have been part of the team that went to the World Cup, but you're, you're like, it is what it is. You're grateful to be there and you know that you have the next year. So rolling into what would have been, what, 2018? Yeah, 2018. That, that yeah. year, like you must have put yourself in into an even bigger hurt locker, I guess, to make sure that you were in that team the following year. Yeah, bro. Yeah, I did. Um, it's probably where the beginning to the end started for me, actually, to be honest. So, yeah, that year made, so my second year of 20s made Oceania again. And there was only me, Carlos Price, Rob Cobb, and Tom Christie were the only returners from that World Cup winning team. So there was four of us. And well, I naturally, I just kind of thought that, like, my experience would help them in, in some way, whether that be on the field, off the field, leadership, and film, did it matter? And I didn't expect to get picked. My ego didn't change. In fact, it got a little bit smaller because I thought, fuck, if, if I miss out on this, like, that's really going to affect me. So didn't take any chances, left most, no rock unturned. And bro, I remember going to my first 20s camp in that second year. My yo-yo was like an 18, which is real poor for a 10. Trained and ended up getting like a 19.5, just missing out on the 20. So like, I was really, really dedicated, real committed. And... Still didn't get picked for that World Cup, though. And I don't know. It was, um, it was, it's, I, I like talking about it. Like, it doesn't bring up any bad memories. Like, I've learned a lot from it. I've grown as a person from it. Um, and I'm happy to share my story because hopefully people can learn something from it. So, bro, not making that 20s team that second year, it was like getting something really important just ripped away from you and it's out of your control. So, that's exactly how it felt like, man. And, I just went into a downward spiral. Like, I didn't really know how to deal with it. At the time, I was living in Hamilton on my own. Um, I was meant to be flitting with, with like, Brad Slater, Tom Florence. Um, at the start of the season, I was like, oh, I'm going to move out on my own because I want to control my sleep, how much sleep I get so I can train better. So on Friday nights, I'm not up at 2 a.m. trying to get to sleep if, like, people are on the personal coming around to our flat. So I had a really professional mindset at such a young age, and I think it's worked against me. Because I didn't enjoy that whole process of it. Um, you can learn, like you can, you can go through things and you can learn something and you can fail. You can be good at something, and people will either, when you look back on it in hindsight, you'll either think of it as a positive experience or a negative one. And that whole journey of me trying to make twenties that second year, I look back is just just black, bro, just dark. Um, the whole thing was negative. I didn't enjoy anything about it. Uh, I didn't enjoy the professionalism. I didn't enjoy the training, and I think it was inevitable that I that I didn't make it because my whole life was dedicated to making that World Cup team, bro. And when they went off to World Cup, I was back in Hamilton um, playing club. I'd wake up, go to the gym, train, come home, have breakfast, maybe sit down, play Fortnite until 4.30, 4.45, had club training at 5, oh, 6, sorry. And I'd just be late to club training for no reason. Well, I was sorry, I had a, just come out of class like you know just just like just lost i was just lost bro and obviously hamilton's four hours away from home my partner was in auckland i was on my own so i thought i was the only one kind of going through that mess and turns out i wasn't bro which is which is the funny thing so um yeah bro that, that was that was a pretty a pretty tough time for me um i distanced myself from a lot of people um didn't talk to anyone I was eating bad food. My training was shit. I was putting on weight. Yeah, I bottled things up. 
but the beauty of the beauty of it, bro, is that not not actually getting picked in that team, I learned a lot more about myself, and I'm grateful for that, man. Like, obviously, I'll never be able to make that team again, but like I've made it those last two years. So, I'm a big believer in everything happens for a reason, and massive, massive learnings, bro. Biggest, probably the biggest one, exactly the same thing that I took away from Kings is just got to learn to enjoy the process like if you don't enjoy the process and you're outcome based you're solely focused on the outcome then when you when you get there it's not going to be as enjoyable so um, that was my biggest learning from it yeah tried to deal with everything on my own just didn't happen so took my partner and my family and and stuff to kind of make me unlearn all those thoughts and then build me back up and yeah I was at that stage where I was on my way back to the Naki where I didn't play that many games and that's kind of where like the self-doubt started started for me, not getting selected. Um, my body wasn't in the best shape. I just didn't feel like I was good enough anymore, to be honest. Like as, as a rugby player, not as a person, but I wasn't good enough as a rugby player. So at that time, it was my whole life. My whole purpose was up in the air. So I was just lost, bro. I was 18, 18 and just lost pretty much. It's the best way to... Um, kind of explain it so yeah that's that's probably a one of the best ways i can describe that whole process so tough times bro but tough times never last only tough people so grateful grateful for that opportunity that experience bro i appreciate the transparency there and like the and the reason i wanted to highlight it after hearing it beforehand was this is the reality for so many boys and yeah. Like you said, even for someone like yourself, like again, not to rub it in, who was pretty successful at school, bro. Like by all intents and purposes, like if you talk to most boys, probably like from your crop of rugby players, you probably, they would have been like, yep, Sharan's going to crack it. But for whatever reason, bro, some guys do and some guys don't. Hmm. And I guess like you're one of the, the lucky ones who have come away with it and taken a lot of learnings. Whereas I think there might be a, a lot of other boys who haven't even... I guess reflected on it or looked at that setback in yeah. that way. Yeah. Um, and that's what I mean. I, like for me, like what I like to highlight on the podcast is just the, the not so glamoury side of rugby, because I feel like that stuff gets overlooked because of what we do see on TV. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, like you, I guess what from, from the, from the sound of it, like that was your first setback. And then, you know, especially like in high performance sport where confidence is probably the biggest thing over everything. Once that mm. self-doubt starts to creep in, that's when I guess things took a turn for the worse. And I noticed that you actually stopped playing footy. So was that like, like how hard was that decision to just walk away from the game? And like, was that just to get yourself back on the straight and narrow? Um, but it was, it was a pretty easy decision, to be honest. For some reason, it just felt right in my heart that I was kind of ready to step away from the game at that point. At that time, I'd like not for good. Um, obviously, rugby is a big part of who I am and, and kind of my story. So I'm always going to acknowledge that and I'm never going to say never that I won't return. But I just felt like it was right in my heart at the time. Yeah, it just wasn't a, the environment that I wanted to be in. When I looked at myself in five years, I didn't like what I saw. So I decided to change and pretty pretty rough decision from the outside. Like it can, it can be, can be seen as a tough decision. Um, I don't think people kind of expected it. I don't think people thoroughly enjoyed hearing the news, but 
I did what was best for me, listened to my heart, and it's probably the, the right decision in the end. So I can look at rugby now and not see it as everything, the be-all and end-all for me. I've got a life outside of rugby now, um, and I can always go back to to footy, whatever level it may be, and just enjoy it for what it is because I'd, I'd lost that. I'd lost my passion. I'd lost my competitive edge, probably because of some of my doings as well. So. Um, I just want to touch on that point that you brought up before is that obviously we talked about how everything can happen so quickly. It can all get taken away from you really, really fast as well, if not faster, albeit injuries, selection, bad form. Um, and that is that for some people can be the start to the end as well. So I love what you're doing with your podcast in terms of highlighting that not glamorous side of the footy. If you look at, if you look at the All Blacks last night, they had 23 players but how many rugby players are there in the professional environment in New Zealand? So the amount of like the, the probability and the chance of you actually actually making it is really really small, <laughs> and that's just that's just a matter of the fact. And I always think of the amount of talent that's untapped or that just hasn't made it to the top, as opposed to the talent that is there. Like I think there's a lot more talent out there than what is being produced because the probability is so small, but Man, it's it's a uh, it's not glamorous um, for some people. It is, and that's awesome for them. For me, it wasn't. as what it is. But it's yeah, it's a it's a business. Very political. Um, if you're on the right side of things, you're sweet. If you're not, you're on the fence. Um, and when I was on the fence, I didn't like it pretty much. Um, you could say I gave up. I just realised that it wasn't for me. So take it how you want it. See it how you see it. But man, I'm happy now. I feel like if I was to go back to the game. I'd enjoy it a lot more, which which is what I wanted. This is what I wanted to be like when I looked at myself in, in, in a few years. So I'm lucky, bro. I'm lucky that I made that decision early um, and grateful, man. Yeah, bro. I mean, you touched on it like, you, like essentially it is just a game and you want to play a game to have fun. And I mean, like it's it's interesting that you talk about how, you know, you, you got to the point with you where it wasn't fun, like you talked on like before you even missed out on selection, like that whole training process, it wasn't enjoyable. And yeah. I mean, like you can, you can translate that to any walk of life, bro. Like I know mates of mine who went to uni first year, got stuck in. And the only reason they persisted with it was because they were too scared of what other people would think of them if they left yeah. it. Yeah. And like, I've had maybe not so much direct chats with players in the professional environment now, but you know, people who are close friends to them or family to them. And they are almost certain that a lot of those boys do not enjoy it. Yeah. You know, but because they've been fast tracked, you know, they've gone from someone like you who's gone straight from school into a professional environment. Everyone's like, yeah, this guy's going to be an all black. This guy's going to crack it. You know, he's going to make heaps of money being a rugby player. Mm. And like you said, it probably gets to the point where they're like, like, if you think about it, bro, like if you're a really, really good rugby player, you're playing that game and training towards well train you're training towards it 12 months of the year bro you have to be on and you're yeah. probably playing at nine to ten months and to do yeah. that year in year out with all the knocks that you take bro that shit would get monotonous and fucking probably boring bro like people get sick of watching the yeah. same tv show like every other week like let alone actually getting up and busting your ass and eating healthy um but like you said Absolutely. like unless like you're one of those weirdos who actually like thoroughly enjoys it yeah like, it, it's tough bro and again like when i when i talk about like translating it to real life like there are people who are working in the same job 
one because they can't be asked finding a new one but two because there's just they, they they have an expectation to do it bro or they have dependables that have to do it and like yeah. you said i guess you're you were in a fortunate place uh, maybe not, not so much what you went through but that you were able to make that call on your own terms and have come out the other side a better man for it yeah absolutely i think when i made that decision bro i was kind of so deep in my own thoughts that when I made the decision, I didn't really think of what other people thought of me until after I'd, until after the fact. That was, surprisingly, it wasn't a thought that crossed my mind until I'd made it and I was like, oh, fuck. Shit, what have I done? <laughs> so, man, you're always going to have that. You're going to have people who have an opinion on you, especially if you've got status or if you've, you know, if people kind of look at you in, in the professional area. So, yeah. Like you said, bro, I'm happy again. I've got other passions now. Um, when I look at footy, I don't look at it and be like, fuck, I wish I was playing. That's, that's just the honest truth, bro. I'm a, I'd much rather be doing what I'm doing now. I love my job. I love doing podcasting. I love connecting with people like you. I love sharing stories. I love connecting. I love living my life, bro. Being in a rugby environment, like, you're so structured. You know, like, you do the same thing most days. You've got timings. You need to be somewhere at a certain time. Man, like, I'm just living my life how I want to live it now, you know what I mean? Like, no one's telling me what to do. Not that I'm, like, a little brat and will play up if someone tells me what to do. Like, I've no qualms with that. But, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm enjoying everything about life now. I'm not making unnecessary sacrifices. I'm just going with life, bro, and it's, it's such a good feeling, man. And it's nice that I can have something to compare that to. Yeah. So, like, I'm grateful for all the experiences I go through now because I never used to experience them as such when I was playing footy. So... It's all about learnings, man. I've had a lot of them in the last couple of years. I mean, you touched on your podcast, bro, but I just mentioned a quote, and I'm not sure if you've heard it, bro, and I, no, I love it because after going through some tough stuff myself, um, it just really resonated with me and that maybe what didn't work out for you really did work out for you. Yeah. Like, you know, you think that like sometimes, you know, yeah. like when you're yeah. in the moment, you're like, fuck, like why the hell is this happening to me? Like this sucks. Like there's no way I'm going to get over this. This is only a negative. And then, you know, just to throw out another quote, bro, like you, you grow through what you go through and yeah. like, look at you now, like you said, like you're, you're enjoying life far more than what you ever did being in a rugby environment, which to, from the outside looking in, bro, like people be like, what the hell? Like, how could yeah. you not love being in a rugby environment? Like that's such a privilege, but that's just the harsh reality of um, what rugby is with it being a business. But going into your podcast, bro, and pretty much like how I found out about you, um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and like what that's given you the opportunity to do now? Because like you just said that you love your, your storytelling and connecting with people. And what, what's the what's ultimately the purpose behind you getting in front of a microphone by yourself or with other people? Um, right, the whole purpose is kind of just to off the back of my experience that you've just heard is to highlight people's mental struggles, mental health battles through high high performance sport. They're not bulletproof; they're human, just like all of us, and they experience the same emotions as we do, whether that be anger, guilt, frustration, self-doubt, sadness, and kind of unwrapping that whole stigma around, oh yeah, rugby player, must be hard. Um, pretty privileged to be in that position. Better not play up, better not do anything bad in the media. Um, kind of unwrapping that and kind of giving people a more of an insight as to kind of what it's like as a professional athlete. I don't try and get rugby players on although that's my background um there are a lot of people who have got stories in that rugby arena but like i've had basketball players on 
Um, I've got people in different arenas jumping on as well. So like you said, how you try and translate it to life, it's not just rugby, bro, it's all sports. Um, it's that mentality behind it. So I feel like off the back of my experience, there's a lot of learnings that people could have from it. And to be honest, when I left the game, I, I struggled to articulate why, why I left the game. And I've kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. And I felt like a podcast was just the best way for me to express myself openly, honestly, transparently. And it's taken a while for it to get off the ground, but I think people have kind of, they kind of know what I'm up to now and they appreciate it. And, and um, I'm grateful for that. So a podcast for me is like just being able to connect and being able to share stories. People remember stories. Um, people are connected to stories and there's so many cool stories in the rugby environment that no one knows about, bro. And like, I've only spent two years in, in, in professional rugby and I, I've got so many stories. I, I can't imagine what the likes of Liam Messam's got because like how many years has he been a professional footy player? So, bro, I, I feel like, yeah, I've always wanted to highlight that, that mental health struggle through professional sport and that's the sole purpose behind it. And on the flip side, like I said, I love connecting. I love talking like this. So it's just an awesome opportunity, bro. And it's growing and like yours is it's growing as well you've had some awful guests on so um, it's just such a cool arena to be in uh the more podcasts the more content the more value the more learning so big fan of podcasting bro couldn't have put it any better myself um and i've and i've listened to yours um I, notably like i mentioned the jordan simi one um so where can the listeners find your podcast bro so they can enjoy what i've already been listening to yeah, find me on Instagram, bro. Um, CRM podcast. So CRM is the name of the podcast. It's just my initials. I'm Sharon Ruben Martoy. So CRM podcast on Instagram, um, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, bro. So yeah, there's a few cheeky stories in there. And you know what? It's all about documenting the journey as well. So my first four or five episodes, bro, I just sound like an idiot. Like, I could take them down and read, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I could take them down and redo them, but. If I look back at how I host podcasts now to how I podcast then, it's completely different. It's a skill. Uh, you only get better at it as you go on. So someone, you've, you've got to start somewhere, bro, as, as you would know. So, yeah. Here we go, Fine Note, Serian Podcast. Um, I think that's a wrap on like everything that I've wanted to learn about, obviously like your story and then um, off the back of that, the potty, bro. But what I'd like to wrap my shows up with are two segments. Uh, the first of which is, could you take us back to your playing days and what was, you know, obviously like you're a pretty serious dude, bro, but what was your pre-game routine like? Um, oh, bro, it's, I don't know, I'm, I'm a little bit superstitious, eh? So um, my boots have always got to be clean. Um, I love clean boots. So um, I'd, I'd have my gear packed the night before, just pretty much just like a psycho, bro. I'm pretty much a psychopath, certified psycho. So um, yeah, bro, I'd just be prepared night before i'd have like a high carb dinner probably pasta um and just chill out uh morning off probably enjoy coffee down at the beach and just kind of just listen to good music chill out if it's sunny chill out in the sun bro go for a swim and then if it's a seven o'clock kickoff it'd be about 1 2 p.m where i'd just kind of be like oh yeah sweet like i'll go to my book have a look at the moves game plan game management all of that put it away enjoy like the next couple of hours um, and then fast forward dinner, strapping, all that stuff, get to the stadium. I'm a big fan of environment. So 
I'll probably get to the stadium, headphones on, chill music, just walk out on the stadium, feel the grass, look at the stands. This is this is the arena that we're going to be in. Get the excitement up, feel the ball, look at the TV cameras, um, all of that good stuff, bro. So really soak it up, enjoy it, and then go inside. One last look at the book, chuck the boots on, and it's go time. So, bro, if, if at that stage before you run, then prep. So um, I always wanted to make sure that I never had to second-guess a decision or I knew that if we're having a scrum on our 40, going in on the right side with their halfback, either tight in the ruck or tight in the scrum, sorry, or if he's coming wide, then I know what we're doing. So, yeah, bro, that's a little bit about my game day routine. Um, I only used to have strappy tape around my left wrist. Never used to ride on it. Sometimes I did. Um, if I did, it would probably be mum, dad, and just a few things like enjoy, breathe, have fun type of thing. So um, music-wise, um, old school, a little bit old school, um, and L.A.B. Can't beat a bit of L.A.B. How good. Uh, left boot, right boot, anything like that? Yeah, bro, left boot first, always. See, and for you, was it like because you had a bad game putting your right boot on first or did you just never even want to risk it? No, nah, bro, no. Nah. I, I don't know. I've just always put my left shoe on first, regardless of boot or not. So, um, yeah, bro, I've just always put my left one on. It's just habit, bro. But that, that's more than anything. Yeah. Like, it's just habit. That's about it, yeah. All right, bro. Last segment. Ten in the bin. Ten questions. Just be as honest as you've already been, please, bro. <laughs> Number one, what's your go-to vessel at a pre-drinks on a night out? Uh, the moment, it's Purple Pals. Dangerous. Bro, so good, bro. So good. <laughs> bro, do you know what I only learned the other day, bro, is that like on the can, there's like the writing, and it can it tells yeah. you when it's cold. Do you know that? Oh, legit. Does it yeah, like, can you yeah. see it clearer? Well, I think it goes blue, bro, and if it's not blue, it's not cold. Oh, grass. Yeah, that's sick. <laughs> yeah, bro. You're bro, that's cool. Me, bro. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, Number two, who's the most notable coach's pet you've been around? Oh, Tom Christie or Brad Slater. Who was your idol growing up? Uh, when I was young, it was Dan Carter. When I was getting growing up a little bit, Autity Black. Nice. What, what was your must-do, or even now, what's your must-do on a day off? Um, sleep on, bro. Easily. Bro, same. A favorite cheat meal? Oh, it's chopping and changing at the moment. Um, Japanese. What do you get? Sushi, katsu curry, ramen? Sushi, ramen. Bro, Love bro. it, bro. So, uh, if you weren't a rugby player, or even outside of your mahi now, bro, like you can you can go wherever you want with this, bro. Like, if you hadn't have like dedicated your time towards rugby, what do you reckon you would have turned out being? Um, I either wanted to be a pilot or be in the army, bro. Sniper in the army. Yeah, legit. Are you a bit of a cod man? Oh, I used to be back in the day. Not so much now, but I don't know. My old man was in the army. My quarter was in the 28th Māori Battalion. So I like, kind of grew up with those dreams, but um, rugby got in the way. So yeah, sniper in the army or pilot. Nice. Uh, who's the cheapest teammate you were ever around? <laughs> oh, the total or Jesse Pretty. I'll say Jesse. I'll say Jesse. Bro, he's the boat that carries on, bro. That cracks me up. The <laughs> the one that... <laughs> You'd think it'd be the quiet one, bro. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, 
who's an artist song or podcast bro that you're listening to the moment that you could recommend um podcast would be oh bro, i listen to a few eh? um we'll come back to podcast artists at the moment um connects fee joint uh and a little bit of j cole big j cole fan podcast um yours an ordinary kiwi alan ave and hustlers at the moment grateful for the plug bro question number nine who's the biggest grub you played with and against oh bro biggest grub i've played with um oh it's hard it's hard biggest grub i've played with it'd have to be um probably tom florence bro tom florence is pretty bad respectfully and the one i've played the grub i've probably played against would be Oh, that's hard. Probably um club rugby up in Hamilton, bro. Hamilton old boys as a whole grubs. Fucking grubs. Grubs. It was like when they had Sevu, Quinn, Xavier Rowe, some of their older dogs. I got hooked on the face once for no reason. I think I clapped at some Fijian dude who got a yellow card and then he came over and hooked me. So that whole fucking club, bro, grubs. <laughs> yeah, bro. So, some of the old thoughts in Club Footy, bro, just uh dish from their old school era and they don't give an F. Last one, cuz you got to finish the sentence for me. Saturdays are for the boys, bro. 100%. Not for footy anymore. It's for the boys. Days off, beers, sun, summer, beach. How good? Bro, it's, it's, it's the perfect answer, bro. I always give anyone shit who doesn't give me that answer. Yeah, like, grateful. Bro, you lied on the inside if you're not giving me that. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 bro, don't get me wrong though. I totally understand where, where the train of thought is when they don't answer that way. But yeah, nonetheless, my guy, um, very much appreciative of the time that you've afforded me. Appreciate you being so transparent with your story, bro. And hopefully, for whoever listens to this, they get a better understanding of, I guess, the harsh realities of footy and um, how ultimately there's there's more to life than just a game. So, yeah, grateful and um, take care of yourself for the rest of this lockdown in Auckland. Thank you, Bruno. Thank you for reaching out. Um, thank you for having me. Love what you're doing. If anyone out there wants to ask me any questions on what it was like leaving, if you need any help, um, I'm an open book, man. So hit me up if you need anything. But again, bro, thank you for having me on. Appreciate your time. Um, Taranaki Hardcore, bro. <laughs> bro, I've got a beanie with Taranaki Hardcore on it, bro. Don't you worry. But there you go, I know. CRM podcast, you already know what to do.